And now, broadcasting live on Star Worldwide Networks, it's time for Your Road to Personal Addiction Recovery with Dr. William Nelson. If you suffer from addiction to opiate pain relievers, heroin, alcohol, or other substances, we're here to give you hope and help you overcome your addiction. Now, here's your host, Dr. Nelson. You know, over the years that I have worked in the area of addiction and addiction recovery, and uh, the part that I can play in this uh, challenge is uh, pub- number one, public health concern. Um, people come to their addiction through many venues, and I don't believe I've had the opportunity to talk with someone who began their challenge with drugs through the military. And um, this is a whole huge problem with the Veterans Administration and the VA and our whole military um, establishment. And I don't think it's been given uh, an appropriate amount of concern and attention. And uh, But but today, in small part, we want to shine some light on that and um, talk about how that occurs and how many, maybe even talk about how many people are affected by this and then uh, what are the, some of the resources that people can use, not only if you become um, challenged with drugs through your uh, introduction in a mili- due to military service or anywhere else. But uh, today um, I have Austin Toller. He is a recovering addict with a commitment to helping others. He became addicted to opioids while in the military and has gone through a long road recovery. Austin is currently in a state housing program He's a manager for a managed healthcare and insurance provider, and he's an intern as a practicum therapist in a mental health practice. He has served in various capacities for nonprofit organizations in Reno, Nevada, and in and as the Downtown Reno Partnership and Volunteers of America for Northern California and Northern Nevada. He is earning his master's degree in social work from the University of Nevada, Reno. And with that, I'd like to welcome um, this this man, Austin Pollard. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, and by the way, in case you're wondering, you're, my name is Dr. William Nelson, and you're listening to Your Road to Personal Addiction Recovery. So, um, Austin, um, so nice to hear from you. Um, I'd like to to get started, and maybe if you can just give a brief background you know, it's, it's so interesting for people to hear, you know, the story because, you know, we can give advice, we can give, you know, some suggestions, but I think if people can see or understand that a part of what happened to you may have some similarities to what happened with them, then they can gain insight and therefore help others. So could you give a little background, maybe kind of just, here's the way, here's the way it might work. It just just uh, uh, go through your life in the seven-year increments, one to seven, seven to 14, 15 to 21, 21 to 28, and just highlight if there's anything that was very significant. It gives us an idea of who you are, where you came from, and then we can focus on your uh, service in the military and how you how you came to your challenge. Yeah, yeah, no, um, 
and I, I definitely appreciate it because there's there is a lot of power in the story, and that's um, it's been a blessing for me to be able to share my story um, because for so long, uh, even talking about this is a kind of a taboo subject. But for me, uh, early life kind of looked around uh, looked like I, I was bouncing around a lot. Uh, my dad traveled a lot for work. I lived with step parents, and then um, my aunts and uncles. But I, I was constantly all over the place. Uh, my mom left at an early age, which uh, it wasn't until I got older I realized how that affected me. Um, but prior to joining the Marine Corps, uh, it was a constant desire just to fit in. I would wear different kind of masks, and what, what I eventually found is for how I can fit in is partying, going out and drinking, and you know trying to be the funny guy. Um, but I, I didn't realize that early on that it was setting me up for a a pretty disastrous path. Uh, can I can I ask I, you a question in that regard? So yeah, how, how did it how did it help, or what did it do? Were you socially awkward? Were you a little, you know, just shy, introverted, and then um, drugs or alcohol just kind of made you more relaxed? And you know, how did it how did it change your ability to interact with others? So. Looking back, I, I think there was a lot of discomfort with who I am, not feeling accepted. Um, and, and bouncing around a lot also kind of taught me how to be different with different kind of people. Um, okay. So that th there was never that finding who I am and being that person. It was always reading the room and, and trying to fit into where I'm at. Um, yeah. And then in, in high school, like I, I was on my own quite a bit from my, my junior and senior year. Uh, my dad was traveling. By then, I was kind of old enough to be by myself. So I had the capacity to just be able to have people over at my house and drink all the time. And um, I mean, I, I got to where like, I would go to the store and steal beer just so I can provide alcohol to people. That, that eventually got me in trouble. Um, I was fighting all the time just because... I felt like that that was a, a way for me to show that I have value and that I have work. Um, so where were you growing was, up? Where where did you grow yeah. up? So I, I grew up in Yuma, Arizona. Um, oh, not got too it. far okay. from where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, as a kid, it was a small, kind of a small community. It's grown quite a bit now. Um, but, I mean, I, I had really It is primarily, work. primarily, for those people that are not familiar, it's primarily. Uh, military town and it's southern arizona kind of halfway between tucson and la yeah is that yeah, it's down on the border california and mexico yeah yeah and then um the the, the other uh, claim to fame is that there's a couple movies uh it's about something about the train to yuma have you ever Retail seen that? To yuma yep, yep. yeah oh, yuma. awesome movie really good movie. yeah i saw that a little bit ago yeah Okay, so, so, so that gives a little context. So, was your was your uh, were you in a military family? No, I was not. My grandfather served in the army. Um, uh, so, but that that was about it. And I didn't know too much about his service. Uh, but growing up in a military town, uh, a lot of my friends' parents were in the Marine Corps. Uh, I spent a lot of time on the base there as a kid. Uh, got it. For me, okay. it was like that that kind of became the only branch of service that I would ever look at. Got it. Okay. Okay, so you're you're in high school. You got a lot of free time. You got you're trying to find yourself, or you're a chameleon. It's fair to say in your social settings with with your peers. And so then, um, was it what was your drug of choice? Was it alcohol or pot or what was it? 
so in high school, I was just drinking. Um, okay. Never really considered doing anything else. I, I just drank. Um, and back then, I mean, there wasn't there wasn't any real consequences with it. Uh, I did have a friend that uh, passed away by rolling his uh, Jeep um, from drinking and driving. But r- really, I mean, e- even legally, there was not consequences. If the cops came, they usually just had us all go home. So then it it kind of set a standard that there's not a lot of issues involved with it, you know? So, um, looking back, that was pretty, it kind of really set me down that path. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, and then how long or when did you leave Yuma? So uh, around 17, um, I wound up, my, my father traveled around with the carnival. Uh, I played sports all throughout high school. So that, that kind of, like they they kept me in school because I was good at sports. Um, once baseball season ended, I got myself in trouble. They wound up kicking me out of school, um, so I, I went and traveled with my dad for that summer, and I, I found a Marine Corps recruiter in <clears throat> Ventura, California, and I only had a couple credits that I had to finish. Uh, I went to an adult school over there just to get my diploma, um, and then I, I wound up sh- shipping out to the Marine Corps uh, a few months after that. Okay. Um, and and your dad your dad was you say in the in the fair or the yeah the fair. So he yeah so he he left his home when he was about seventeen. Joined the carnival, the fair, traveled around, um, and he he made a, a pretty good career out of it. But it forced him to be on the road a lot. Um, yeah. As a yeah, kid, yeah. I enjoyed it, but as I got older, it was just not something that I wanted to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then where were you stationed? So my first, my first, uh, I mean, I went to MCRD San Diego, um, and then my my next duty station was Twenty Nine Palms, California. Uh, I went to Okinawa, Japan. Uh, I I went to Thailand when they had a tsunami. Back to Okinawa. Um, I went over to Al Assad, and then back to Okinawa, and then I I ended up in Pendleton. And all, all this happened. Uh, Within about a two and a half to three year period, because I, I got medically separated um, at the late end of two thousand five. Wow! So you, I was didn't keep count, but that was about six places in two years, two and a half years. Yeah. So I, my my MOS, like, so I I was in communications, um, and we got this new digital switchboard. Uh, I was one of the first Marines to go through on it. So one of my functions was teaching other Marines how to use it. Um, oh, got it. Yeah, so it, they they kind of bounced me around a little bit. Um, yeah. But I think pro- probably the biggest thing that affected me is I I wanted I wanted like the to be stationed on the west coast or the east coast, and they they wound up sending me to Okinawa, um, and that in itself was a great experience. I, I really enjoyed the culture and the diversity there there, but I I instantly fell very disconnected from the rest of the the world um yeah and then then you know between everything i was doing my mental health was struggling um and i not only through high school but also kind of the marine corps culture was alcohol you know um i mean yeah. i i don't want to encompass all marines but at least my feeling is you know the marine corps was founded in a bar and I, like we i always thought that was cool and like you know we, we take a lot of pride in that. Um, but it wasn't until I got on the Marine Corps uh, is when 
it really started to affect me. Um, like my mental health was drastically suffering and I just self-medicated. And then that also led to more issues um, between my my back injury um, and my mental health. It, it got to the point where a medical discharge was pretty much the only option for me. I, I just, I wasn't functioning, which that made it even harder for me. Um, because at that point, it's like, I'm not fit to be a Marine, um, you know. And, and the second somebody said something like that to me, I, I would fight. Uh, it was hard because my whole identity was being a Marine. I loved it. I, I felt like I was good at it. And then then now I'm looking at being separated and losing my identity. Um, and that, that was a very hard experience for me. Right. So, and that was... um. What year are we talking about? About what age years? So at this time you're in your early twenties. Yeah, yeah. So I I got out of the Marine Corps just a little bit before my twenty first birthday. Okay. Um, yeah, and um, I, and literally on my twenty first birthday is when, when I got my first DUI. Um, Ooh, okay. At, yeah, at that point, you know, no other drugs was really affecting me. Like I hadn't hadn't really gotten into that scene yet. But I, I was yeah. drinking. You know, I was drinking a lot, mm-hmm. and I was fighting. Um, yeah, yeah. And even the prescriptions I had, like I was still, I was getting oxycodone, but I wasn't taking too many of them. Um, and I, I can't remember exactly when it happened, but they upped my oxycodone. I went from ten milligrams to thirty milligrams, and I, I was in the Bay Area, and I, I took that first pill, and the euphoric feeling that I got from it was like none other. I had energy. I was ready to talk at, at this point in time, I was working at a gym. I was selling gym memberships. So like my energy was there. I was excelling at work and I didn't want to drink anymore. So to me, it was like, Hey, this is great. Like alcohol gets me in trouble. These pain pills make me feel good. I'm doing good at work. I feel happy. So I didn't see an issue with it. And I, I kind of went on for a couple of years. Um, and I was able to manage it. I got into cocaine. I started doing a lot of cocaine. Um, remember I called my dad, asked my dad for some help. Um, and he, he was kind of old school. You got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. He gave me the hard love, uh, told me he doesn't want to see me, filed a restraining order on me, uh, cause his fear was that I was going to start stealing stuff. And that really created a big disconnection between me and him. And it also kind of started me even further down the hole. Um, I got, I, I began just experimenting with lots of things. I mean, I, I, I partied a lot. So there was ecstasy, cocaine, pretty much anything I can get my hands on, I'd begin doing. Um, okay. But it, it wasn't until about, I was around 24. At this point, I mean, I, I had a good hefty prescription of pain pills. I wasn't taking them all. I, I was giving some away. I was trading some. Um, but I remember laying in bed one night when I was out of my pills, and I, I felt sick. I was just not feeling well. I couldn't sleep. I was tossing and turning. My body hurt. And um, I was talking to a friend the next day, and it was weird. They're like, oh, dude, you're you're going through withdrawals. And it, it was almost as if the second I recognized that, like, there were withdrawals because of the pain pill, something flipped in my brain. It, it, it went from just taking them, no, no big deal, to needing them. And that, that's when things really began to go downhill. I began 
doctor shopping. I mean, I, I had the injuries to where I knew I could walk into any doctor office, show some x-rays, and they'd let me leave with some pain pills. Um, and it, it just it really started going downhill from there. What year What year approximately is this, like, in a uh, timeline? So you're, you're like, 24, 25, but what year is it? I want to say roughly around 2009. Okay. Yeah. That was that was probably before they had the electronic, uh, you know, controlled substance software. Where you know, anytime I write, I rarely, if ever, write uh, opioid prescriptions. But if I do, or any controlled substance, I got to go on a, on a uh, computer system and make sure that a person isn't getting it elsewhere. That's probably oh, yeah. before they had that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. and I mean. I'll be honest. So, uh, like looking back, like I've I've always been a motivated individual, and you know, I it just depends on what I channel my energy towards. And I I went as far as reading medical handbooks, re- reading on how how and why doctors describe them, the right things to say. I I learned how the pharmaceutical systems work, um, how states didn't communicate with each other. The VA doesn't communicate with states. Uh, there was a point where I had doctors in Arizona, doctors in California. Um, the VA was prescribing them. Like, it, wow, you were you you're pretty resourceful. <laughs> and I mean, it's on one hand it, it, it's impressive, but on the other hand, it's it's saddening. It's uh, you know, it it was very easy for me to get a large amount of pain pills. Um, yeah. Not only like that, like my my circle of friends also had the same ability. You know, the, there's the right things to say and the wrong things to say when you when you're talking to a doctor and like you, you just get better at it and better at it. Um, yeah. And that that's where things really got bad for me, because th- there was a point where oxycodone w- wasn't cutting it. I, I can go through. A, I went through like 130 milligram oxycodones in three or four days and I, I just wasn't getting out of it what I wanted. Wow. Um, yeah. So, so that that's what kind of turned me over to heroin. I've never been somebody I, okay. I, I've never smoked or anything. So that wasn't what I wanted. Like I, I went straight to intravenous use. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, how fast my life turned into a downfall after that um, was crazy. Like I, I went from having my own place, I had a car, great job, uh, to a matter of months, I was living out of my car. Yeah, and you know, I just looking back, like that, all I cared about was figuring out how I'm going to get my next high. And and not necessarily at this point was it that you were getting euphoric, but you were just preventing from getting sick, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I was it hap- there. It happens I, quickly. It it does, and like after that first withdrawal experience with the pills a couple years prior. Um, and then I moved to heroin. I, I was there in Mesa, Arizona, and I wasn't able to get any heroin. I wasn't able to get anything. And the withdrawal that I experienced there was terrible. It was so bad, I wanted to go into the ER. Um, and the, the second they found out that I was withdrawing, they just discharged me out. Uh, yeah. there, there wasn't any kind of connection to service or anything. So... I went out and like I, I eventually got a hold of somebody and I was able to get it and just continue that cycle. But that that withdrawal experience became something that kind of hid in the back of my brain. I didn't ever want to experience that again. And that's what kept me into that cycle. 
Yeah. Can you can you briefly describe that for um, the people that are listening? You know, I think there's probably more people who are looking for answers for an addicted loved one probably than people who are actually in the throes of active use. So can you describe that as best you can? Just what is it like when when that horrible withdrawal? Because I don't think as many times as people hear about it or their loved one you know, talks about it. I don't think it, you, it really, unless you've been through it yourself, I don't think it really, uh, you can really understand how, how um, much it affects you and how strong it is. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of like to think of the th- things in terms of analogies, you know, when, when, when you look at kids and they're going around, they're exploring what they can and can't do. Like the stove is a great example. You know, um, a kid touches a hot stove, it burns them, they instantly identify, like, I will not touch that. Um, again, because the pain and the misery that is experienced with it. Um, so it's it's similar to the withdrawals. The pain and the misery you go through, you, you're like, I do not want to go through that again. And it puts you in an area where you're, you will do anything to not experience that. Um, I, I don't think... I, I definitely didn't start off my life going, like, oh, I want to be a drug addict and live in the back of the, like, on the streets and do this and that. But, like, that fear of going through that pain and that misery allowed me, like, I, I drew signs in land, sand and I, I would erase it. And then, like, I would begin doing things that I otherwise wouldn't do to make sure I didn't feel that pain and misery. I did anything I could to avoid that. And yeah. that, that's where resourcefulness comes in, you know, like, People consider those experiencing a substance use disorder uh, as like helpless and lost, but the reality is they're very resourceful. I mean, the the ability to continue getting that high is that the drive is just crazy. And I, I remember looking back and thinking like how our brains work, and that's kind of what inspired me to go down the the mental health uh, career pathway. Is just recognizing, man, my my brain was so dedicated to making sure I didn't feel this pain and misery that I, I just continued to push that line and those boundaries. Yeah, it probably did things that you would never in a million years imagine you doing in order to Absolutely. get what you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've burnt many bridges. Um, I mean, just just the fact, just look. Living out on the streets and out on the car and like in my car and being okay with that, like that, mm-hmm. like that is just, you know, l- looking back, it's like wow. I mean, you were you were in Mesa. You were in Mesa at that time. Yeah. So I mean, I I, I lived there. In hope Scott, it wasn't. So. Hope it wasn't in the summer. <laughs> uh, well, I, I mean, I was used to the heat by then. Like I'd grown up in Arizona, wow. um, but I, I also. You know, I, I had access to the VA when things got really bad. I would go check myself in the mental health clinic, um, which it. in itself was crazy because I I would check myself in because I I, I would openly say I, I have a problem with pain pills. I have a problem with heroin. They would check me in. But what, what, what was absolutely crazy is I was still able to pick up my oxycodone every month from the VA, even after checking myself in for having a substance use problem. Wow. Yeah, they they didn't have a system that could kind of keep track of it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, and then what what transpired after that? So, 
I, I began bouncing around. I, I, I kept thinking my my location was the problem, so I, I ended up back in the Bay Area where I have a lot of family and friends and some support there. Um, that just kind of opened me up to more opportunities. Like the, the Bay Area is ripe with abilities for doctor shop and the, the financial gain of getting a massive amount of pills just kind of really put me in a, a spot where I, I could have any drugs that I wanted whenever I wanted. Um, but that, that's also where another turning point happened. Uh, I began doing methamphetamine as well. Um, I'm straight an IV user. Uh, so I went from heroin to methamphetamine. And then like my logic was like, oh, this is good. I'm not doing heroin anymore. Um, and I started doing a lot of meth. And then I started having some more legal issues. And I, I decided that the Bay Area wasn't for me. And I tried to run from that. I went down to San Diego and like, you know, I was just constantly running, but I eventually worked my way back to Arizona. And at this point in time, I, I was uh, intravenously using methamphetamine and heroin together. I, I reached a point where I could only function with those two in my system. Um, and I would go weeks without sleeping. Uh, extreme paranoia and psychosis started kicking in. Uh, I was very fortunate because I, I had a vehicle, so I was able to kind of live in my vehicle. Um, the gym that I loved so much only became a place that I would go to shower. I would sneak into hotel rooms just to go get some breakfast. Um, but that point is when my, my brain broke. Uh, helicopters were following me. Vehicles were following me. And, I mean, look. I remember, like, my logic was as long as I was in the car, nobody can get me. So, like, I would pull into a gas station and put 30 cents of gas into my vehicle just to make it to another gas station because I had a fear of being outside of the car for too long. Um, but wow. it, it just, it really, it really broke my brain. Voices in my head, uh, like, it was, it, it, it was such a crazy experience, and, and it's one where I look back, it was so real. Everything that was happening was so real. Like, even to this day, I still wonder if some of it was real um, just because of, of the feeling and what, what was going on. And that was another point where it just the brain just amazed me, and, like, it, it, was, it was a crazy experience for sure. Wow. So at this time, are we, like, into 2000? 15 or so yeah so we're yeah we're we're roughly around yeah 2015 um i'm back so at this point you're like you're like late 20s yeah yeah i think okay. i was around around 27 um or oh, it's probably about 20 gosh I, I can't even do math right now um but yeah let, late 20s um yeah and we got, point, i guess a picture yeah, and I, I've I've burnt every bridge that I had. People won't talk to me anymore. Family's not there anymore. Um, now I'm very alone. I'm very isolated, and I I just felt lost. And I I got this idea in my head that you know that this is what my life is. I was at the darkest point of my life. I was I hated everything about my life. I hated who I was. Like, the person who I knew I am, I was so far from that. I can see myself. It's like I would sit there and imagine and think who I am. And it's like looking out of the window. And, like, I'm a kid that grew up, I like, camping and hunting and sports. And I'm so far from who that person was. 
and I've alienated everybody in my life. And I got this idea that it was just time to end it all. Um, I, w- I went and bought a, a good sized amount of heroin, drove myself out to the middle of nowhere, one of the places that I usually sleep, kind of over by some train tracks. And I intentionally shot up the overdose. Um, I don't remember too much of that night. I remember kind of doing it. And then I woke up in an ICU. And wow. That was a, a disappointing feeling. I woke up and I, because I, like I, I set my mission to, to kill myself, and I didn't complete that. And now here yeah. I am. I'm strapped to this bed. Voices, paranoia is going on. Uh, doctor somebody, came in. Did somebody find you? Somebody find you? Yeah. And it, it was, I mean, I, I, I thank God every day because somebody was somewhere where they, they normally don't go, just walking a dog, and they saw me hanging out of the vehicle. They got up there. They saw a syringe hanging out of my arm. Uh, they called the cops. Uh, they got there. They they rushed me to an emergency room, but I, I, I would not have survived if, it, if that person wasn't there at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So you wake up in the ICU and you're you're alive but disappointed because you had already made a decision that you didn't want to be around. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So I, I, I do remember. So that was that was February February of twenty fifteen. Okay. Um yeah, I, I remember that date specifically. Um I get up, I started freaking out, I pulled all my IVs out. I would like to say that that was the point that changed everything, but it wasn't. Um, left the hospital, I was strolling aimlessly down the road. Uh, come to find that my my vehicle had been towed. Um, and, and at this point, I had, I had no money, I had no drugs. Uh, and then so I... I I did what I, I usually did when I, I was at that point. I just went to the VA clinic down there in Yuma, Arizona, walked in, said, said I needed help. Um, and then they, they transported me over to Phoenix to the VA there, and they, they put me back up on the uh, the mental health ward. And at that point, I, I did recognize I needed help. Um, I, I was contemplating, like, getting clean, but I, I, I didn't know what to do. I think I was at the mental health clinic for about 12 days. I was communicating with my dad, and my dad lived in Las Vegas at the time. Um, I, I had a, a little bit of an income still because I, I, for my service connection disability, um, and it kind of came down to where, like, I could help my dad out a little financially. He has a room in his house I can stay in, and he'd kind of help me get on my feet, and he got me a Greyhound ticket to go to Vegas, and I don't know if anybody's been to Vegas. If if you're suffering with any kind of substance misuse or anything like that, it is probably not the best place to go. Um, but yeah, I, I ended up there. Probably the first month was good, but it didn't take too long for me and my dad to really kind of start bickering and going at it. And that was my that was my excuse for just he- heading out and going back down the path. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So um, where what happened after that? Where'd you go? So I, since I'd been there about a month, I knew a few people there. I, I would find myself kind of partying, going to the clubs. I uh, came across a guy who had a room for rent in his house um, for for a cheap amount. So I rented that. And at that point, again, I was only drinking 
doing a little cocaine, uh, and then somebody else moved into the house who was actively using heroin. And I instantly connected with that person, and then things just dropped down. Heroin and meth was my life again. I I would doctor shop again. Uh, I filled a couple of prescriptions down there, and I would just trade so I could have a room. Um, but right. I was I was in like my my mental health was gone at that point. Um, it went from like the psychosis would kick in instantly the second that I put any methamphetamine into my body. Um, voices, all of that. It used to be where I would sleep and it would take a day or two. Now it's just the second that went into my body, voices would kick up. And I kind of had this imagery just pop into my mind because my, my dad's health hasn't always been good. Um, I'm looking at myself. I got track marks everywhere. Um, my health, I'm skinny. Like I, I, I would not last very much longer. And I just remember thinking to myself that either I'm going to die or my dad's going to die. And we're not going to have a good relationship because it is difficult as it was. Like we argued a lot that my dad was always there for me. He, he, he was always there. I, I, I could always call him. He would get mad at me and his, his methods of, of his love wasn't what I wanted, but it, it was almost as if it's what I, I needed at the time, that tough love. Um, yeah. But I, I called my dad and I said, dad, I, I need you to pick me up. I need to go to the VA. I think that's when something kind of clicked in me. Like, I really, really need help. I cannot do this. I don't want to do this anymore. My dad took me to the VA, went back up to the mental health ward. And um, and my, my psychosis was bad. I, I was yelling. I was screaming. They had to, like, give me one of those cocktails to put me down. And, like, like they, the plan was to send me up to White City, Oregon, uh, there's a two-year program they have up there, and I was just all on board for it. But something kept happening with paperwork. I had to wait longer. Um, and around the two-week point, I just lost. I lost it. Uh, they wound up having to call the VA police up, and I was combative. That I mean, they had a, all the VA cops up there trying to contain me. Um, I wound up catching myself another charge, uh, sitting in handcuffs in the little holding cell at the VA, uh, and they're transporting me to prompt federal jail. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, what the fuck? Or pardon my language. <laughs> like, what what the heck is going on? Like, I, all I wanted was help. And again, I'm still blaming everybody else. It's everybody else's fault. I wanted help. They're not giving it to me. Like, this is pointless. Um, but looking back, being arrested that day saved my life. That put me in the federal system. Um, so I, I met with the pretrial, uh, kind of a probation officer, and they asked me if I wanted to get help, if I wanted to get clean, because my dad told them that I, I have a major drug issue. Um, and I, I told the lady, like, that's all I've ever wanted. Like, that's that's why I was at the VA. Um, they had me on a plane the following day uh, to fly into Reno and go to a treatment center in Fallon, Nevada. And I, I really didn't know know anything about Northern Nevada. Like to me, like I, I knew Reno and Las Vegas. That was about it. Flew up here. Um, the treatment center picked me up. I went there, and I was still struggling. Um, like they, they had me on Suboxone to kind of for the medication assisted treatment to kind of taper off. But mentally, I was not in a good place. People didn't want to be around me. I got I didn't want to be around myself. So I know. Nobody else wanted to be around me. 
Um, and I, I tried to sabotage myself. I remember sitting in the treatment center, and I, this is something that I've heard from other people going through it, is there's that thought like, oh, there's I have stuff to do. I, I can't be in here. I need to be out there. I got, I got to pay this bill or I got to do this. And um, in reality, I didn't have anything to do. I was on the streets. It's not like I had bills. It's not like I had responsibilities. Um, my my brain just wanted me out so I can go use. And that um that really put me in a tough spot. Um, two weeks in, I, I got in trouble for yelling at one of the support staff. Um, you know, three weeks in, I... I I wound up punching a hole in the wall. And at that point, I, I realized, I was like, I, I really messed up. They're going to kick me out. And I, I remember it like it's yesterday. Um, the inpatient director asked me to come sit with her on a bench. And she she said, Austin, I don't think you see things in yourself that I see, but I'm going to ask you, do you want to be here? And something told me to say yes. Um you know, and I said, yes. She's like, well, I want you here too. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a, an agreement. And I, I I signed like a little contract that I, I would keep my anger under control. The the pretrial, the federal pretrial agreed to allow me to stay. Um, and it was strange because that, that was about 22 days in, somewhere around there. As soon as I hit 31 days, my brain started started to function normal again. I started participating in groups. Um, they they let me go to the gym to go work out twice a week because that, that was a, a good, that, that was self-care for me. I um, started talking to people and I realized like I was getting close to being discharged and I asked, I was like, I need to stay here longer. They let me stay in the advanced recovery program. Um, I think ultimately I spent about 83 days there. But I, I really recognized that after it took at least 30 days for my brain to even somewhat start coming back to normal. Um, but that, that place easily saved my life. And I, I credit it to the, the law enforcement that got involved with me. <clears throat> was that, was that still part of the VA or is that a separate um, from the VA? So that, that's a, a separate program. Um, they, they contract with like the, the federal court systems um for people to be able to go there for treatment so th- this was completely outside the VA um and it Got was it. just all part of my court thing you know and okay. uh, I remember when I cuz the advanced repro- recovery program there um you're allowed to leave during the day to go find work uh I got myself a little job over at the gym down the street uh but when when I got discharged out of that treatment program, I had been able to get myself an apartment. So when I walked out of that place, I had a key to my own place again. And it had been years and years till I had my own place. And I I just remember the satisfaction that I felt from that. Like I, I I felt like my life had changed. Um, And that's when I really started to see the purpose of using my story to help others, you know, otherwise that that it was just a deep, dark period of my life that I can either let hold me down or I can use it to lift me up and being in that treatment center with so many other people with different stories. Um, but our stories were similar. Uh, I realized just being able to share my story, help people. 
And that kind of triggered a passion for me to continue down that route to use my experiences to help others. Yeah. And so that's when that's when you kind of got serious in your recovery and you started to really apply yourself. And then is that also when you decided you wanted to enter that line of work or were, were you still just a point of, you know, in group talking with others? And um, so tell, tell us about that. So I got out of treatment and um, I lived there in Fallon for about seven months. Um, I was working at the gym. Uh, my house was kind of a recovery house. You know, people come over to play games. We go to AA or NA meetings together. Um, but it, it was still kind of surface level. Uh, I, I got to go to the treatment center. They they have, like, they call it an alumni meeting where people from the past can come in and share their story. So I started kind of getting into that. Um, but I, I felt like Fallon was kind of, kind of outgrown Fallon, and I decided to move to Reno, and I started working at a gym here. And now I'm kind of in a new environment. Um, I'm working at the gym. I also decided to pick up a security and a bartending job at night. And that, things were okay. You know, I was drinking a little, um, but then I started drinking more, and, like, I, I was just having issues. Uh, I wound up, I, I got hit by a car. I was in the hospital for a few days, um, and, you know, like, I kind of recovered from that, started drinking some more. Like, me and the nightlife don't mix well. Like, I I don't have a limit, so I, I started going down that path. But the gym was still keeping me on track because I was working out every day. I was having some great progress, and I um I wound up tearing my shoulder, but... I, I had pain like I, I never had before. Um, I went to the VA. They did an x-ray. They said nothing's wrong. Um, went home, and my roommate's girlfriend had pain pills. And this is roughly around, uh, I want to say, my, my one-year recovery mark. Um, I decided to take another pain pill. And um, I, I took about three of them, and then I got this idea, like, what. Well, why am I messing with this? I, I should just go get some heroin. Um, I went and picked up some heroin, and then I just had everything flash in front of me. All the work that I put in, there I was. And I, I went straight to the VA. Um, they checked me in to kind of detox, and I I asked them to put me on Suboxone. And so I, I, I relapsed for about six weeks, and I started Suboxone up. But I was still having like really bad pain at this point my left arm i couldn't even lift a five pound dumbbell like there was something seriously wrong so i went back to the va they kept giving me the run around um and i, I kind of lost my shit on my primary care doctor like i i they weren't listening to me and yeah. they found especially they referred they, me over especially, yeah especially if they yeah. just doing an x-ray for a shoulder like that's not going to show anything unless you got a broken bone so they need to well, they, do ultrasound or MRI. Well, they, they eventually did, but they didn't do an MRI until six months after the fact. And yeah. so they saw that I had a, a torn labrum, and they're like, oh, that's where the pain's coming from. But it, this was like, I mean, I've torn my shoulder before, and it, it was something worse. Um, and a lot of my pain that I had from the military is back and neck. Um, but this was something bad. Uh, fortunately, I got in with an ortho, and th this doctor decided to do the MRI of my spine and 
what, what the results from that showed that my C7 nerve, basically my, my disc had been pushed and compacted. Now I had bone on bone, but the like my spine was rubbing on my C7 nerve, and it, it had almost severed my, my nerve for my left arm, which is why Yelch. I had no strength. And yeah. um, they they did an emergency referral to me to a, a, an outside spinal cord uh, agency. Uh, I got in there, and they're like, we need to get you into surgery, or you, you may lose use of your arm. Um, and so I was doing my Suboxone, and... Then it just got into my mind. Like I'm like, wait a minute. Like I'm gonna have to have surgery. They're gonna have to give me morphine. Like this will probably kick me into like a very bad path. And um, I was scared. I, I was I was petrified. They started tapering me off the suboxone to get ready for the surgery. And um, I had my surgery. I woke up from my surgery and my I, my I was in the weirdest. Like both my arms were just on fire. Like I. Like, come to find out, my spinal cord swole. Uh, I was having some, like, reactions and stuff. So they had to keep me there in the hospital for another week. Um, they were they were giving me morphine for the pain. Um, but, like, I, I was just in a whole nother level of pain at that point. And then started to recover. And I, I remember, because I was very upfront with my surgeon, I was upfront with the, the physician assistant, that I cannot get pain pills when I leave here. Yeah. And... Still, to my dismay, when it, when it came time to discharge, that nurse walked in with a prescription for Oxy. Yeah. And I just looked at her. I, it, it was just uh, it was crazy to me. And I didn't blame her. I just I kind of blamed the system. But yeah, some, something happened that I'd never done before. I just denied the uh, the prescription. Um. And I walked out of that hospital, and that's when I knew something something had changed. I got I had an opportunity to continue going down that route, and I said no. Um, and so, something started in me. Uh, I, there was a couple people in the community that were doing a lot of stuff with their their own story. Um, I was on a webinar. I came across an individual, um, and I had also applied for a grant to University of Nevada for the peer support specialist program they have that I got approved for. So I started going to school a month after my surgery uh, to become a peer specialist. Uh, two individuals came into our class and started talking about like their story and what they do in the community. And I instantly, and I, I'm like me and my buddies still joke about this because I still had my neck brace on. I was super skinny. Um, I mean, I looked like I was still on drugs at that point. And I, I went up to him, like, man, I, I, I will volunteer with you. I'll do whatever with you. Um, and he, his, name, his name's Grant Denton. He's a, him and Pat Cashel both, they, um, they kind of took me in. But Grant gave me opportunity. He's like, hey, I run this recovery fitness program for girls in one of the treatment centers. Show up on this day and this day at 6 a.m. and help me take them through workouts. And I showed up. And I, I, I went there and, like, it was me being able to share my story, and I was continuing to go to school. Um, later in that month, I met my now wife. Like I, I was really involved with my church. I met my 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 wife at the church. We started talking, um, but at this time, my only focus was school and and my recovery. I wasn't really focused on work or anything. Um, my relationship started getting serious, um, but since I, I wasn't working, I I just volunteered every chance that I could. 
Like I, I took every opportunity I could to be part of something. And that kind of really built my relationship with my friend Grant and Pat. And I, I finished the peer support program. I, I had started working as an outreach coordinator, uh, downtown Reno, working with our people like experiencing homelessness and substance use. Um, and I proposed to my, my now wife. And then I, I realized, because my, my grades were good, and I wasn't great at school growing up, and I kind of had a fear of college when I got out of the Marine Corps. I didn't really think it was for me. But I got straight A's, and I was like, you know, maybe I can do the school thing. So I went to the VA. I'd never used my education benefits. Um, I got approved to the voc rehab program that they have. And, like, that program, they pay for everything, but I have to outline exactly what my education path will look like. My goal was to get a bachelor's in social work, uh, it's five, five years of benefits. So, like, every semester I had to pre-plan out which classes they were going to take, and I excelled. Uh, I finished the bachelor's program last May. Um, I did that in just under four years, but I also got accepted into the um, <clears throat> the advanced standing master's program, which is one year, and the VA approved me to, to do that. So, I, I mean, just in... From that, from that surgery to now, it's when my life really changed, being able to say no to that prescription. But starting to use my stories, pursuing my education, getting involved with the community, um, I, I really just started to lift my, my career. And I, I started as an outreach coordinator, and then I was a program manager at our homeless shelter. The, I was there during COVID, so we had, like that, that was a, a very challenging task. We moved our whole entire shelter to an event center. Um, but I just never stopped wanting to use my experiences to help others. And that, that has become a, a driving factor of where I am today. Yeah, you, got, you found a purpose and you found, and maybe it sounds as though you maybe found a community or a sense of belonging or that identity that you were looking for way back when you started to drink in high school where you were trying to fit in and who who were you and how did you relate is that fair to say it sounds like that yeah you know and that's I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because uh identity is essential but purpose purpose drives us you know and i i i cannot stress enough about how important there is to have a purpose and, and know know your purpose. And everybody's different, whether you're in the arts, like it, that finding that purpose is key. Yeah. Well, it's, and it's really challenging, I think, for a lot of people because they, you know, they go to find these menial jobs that allows them to pay their bills, but it doesn't fulfill them. And they're like, oh, this, is this what life's about? So unless they find purpose in relationship or family or something else, if they're looking for it in their career, that's difficult. So if you right. if you're now, it sounds like you found that. And when you're when you're um, doing you continuing your study, and you're um, you're doing the work that you do, and you know it's meaningful, you know it's helping people. That's obviously a driving factor and and making you feel like you have meaning and you have value. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. So congratulations. That's it, it. Obviously, wasn't easy, but maybe a part of the reason why you were able to do that is because of how challenging it was. 
Yeah. Because you you've been through a lot. Yeah. And that and and now it's it's crazy to think that there was a point in my twenties where life got so bad to where I I felt that ending it was the only option for me. But now the the my when I reflect back on my life as I am so grateful for every experience I have, like even those darkest times, because those experiences have led me to where I'm at today. Um, And, and being able to find value in those experiences was instrumental to me. Yeah. Hey, listen, we're uh, hard to believe, but we're coming up at the end of the end of the podcast. So uh, you have about two minutes and if you just want to summarize and give any other information or where you're going next or anything that you feel like drawn to um, share with everybody, it would be helpful. Yeah. You know, um, first and foremost, everyone has this mindset that like the, the, the drugs are the problem. But in reality, the drugs aren't the problem. It's like this. They're fulfilling something. Like the the reason we're doing this because they work for some reason. My 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 whole experience has revolved around mental health. I, I hadn't been able to really turn that corner until I started working internally. Um, and there was a lot of therapists, psychiatrists. Like I I worked with a lot of people. Like for what was going on inside because I, I I'm a strong believer that mental health is what really keeps us down that path um so i i I can't stress enough for everybody to just continue to work on yourself see what's going on like therapy is not a bad thing um getting help isn't a bad thing you know there's help out there um and and for for the parents and, and the individuals listening wondering how to help somebody that's a tricky thing because you you can want everything for somebody but unless they want it themselves it's not going to change but what you can do is create an environment where when they do want help or when they are ready that you take advantage of that because that is a small window Um, anytime that i had that epiphany where i was like i think i need some help it might last an hour it might last a week Um, but in my time when i was going through i didn't I, i mean i knew i can go to the va but I, I I didn't really know like hey I just need to call my dad right now now's the time to help but if somebody reaches out and says I'm ready I need help if you can facilitate that for them get them to that treatment center I'm not saying give them money or pay for all this but facilitate it be like hey I'm here for you let me get you there um, yeah. that might, that might be the difference of them being able to find their recovery or uh, continuing down the other path. Yeah, I, I appreciate that comment. And um, I would just say in my observation with our patients is um, people are always going, well, how, what, what's the secret? How do they get sober? How do they stay sober? And your example and so many others, it's like having a loved one, a parent or someone, usually a parent or a grandparent, that they're able to go to, the parent is able to help them when they need help. But then if they fail or they relapse, don't write them off, you, you know, because it's going to take a couple times. It's going to take multiple times, and there's going to be multiple ups and downs. And as long as right. that person does not give them money for that they can use for drugs or facilitating their continuing their their challenge, but if the help is to get them into a rehab, a 
treatment center facilitate what you're describing. That's that's going to eventually, if they keep at it and they can stay alive and prevent from overdosing and you know killing themselves with an overdose of fentanyl, which is so prominent right now, mm-hmm. that's that's the thing that uh, we all need to realize. I know personally, our a daughter was having problems, and every time we were just like, oh, this is it. This time she's finally going to be serious. And oftentimes it was just because she was using so much that she wanted to decrease her dependence mm-hmm. and her and her tolerance. But even so, that's good. So anyway, I want to thank you so much, Austin, for coming on and uh, sharing your story. And thank uh, all the listeners. Thanks to Robin for being behind the scenes on the board. And um, this is Dr. William Nelson. And thanking all of you uh, for listening to us um, and for another week and another episode of Your Road to Personal Addiction Recovery. You can reach us at explorehealthaz.com. Our phone number is 602-692-4626. And if you're having questions, wonder about how we can help, look on the website, give us a call, and we'll see what we can do to facilitate your recovery in any way that we can. Thanks again. And uh, um, I'm, I'm really happy for you. I'm excited. Uh, keep us informed of how things go. Yeah. Maybe, no, have, you, maybe yeah. have you come Thank on you. again. Yeah, have, maybe have you come on again when you're entering that next phase. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I'm, thank you so much for what you do, uh, creating a space for people to share their stories because there, yeah. there's power in the story. And uh, yeah. I, I believe firmly in, in letting people share theirs. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Your Road to Personal Addiction Recovery with Dr. William Nelson. Listen live each week at this time or anytime 24-7 on demand at StarWorldWideNetworks.com.